Um, I'm going to back up just a little bit uh, into last week's lesson. There was one point that I missed that I, I mean, I, I missed quite a bit, actually. So, you know, start because I think we got through um, the spiritual warfare quality, correct? We got all the way through uh, about 26, and then we had to stop. Well, 27 um, and 28 is, a, although it's a short little excerpt in here, it's really super important, I think, that you grab hold of exactly what was going on there. And then in 29 to thir 32, we see um, where Jesus is, well, actually, it starts in 42 through 54. Let me correct myself. Uh, where he's talking about the woes to the Pharisees and Sadducees. And before that, he's talking about the spirit, the whole subject in the, in the last chapter, if you had to tie it all into one little subject matter, what do you think is going on in chapter 11? Just by way of review, what was going on in that chapter? You don't get to say because you already know. <laughs> we already talked about it. <laughs> she does know the answer. <laughs> what was the major thing that it seemed to be going on there? We started with prayer, right? And then what was the major key word that kept being marked through the almost the whole book? That's right. Very good. Spiritual warfare. See, it wasn't that hard, right? That was a pretty easy answer. Okay, so if the whole book, um, Susan was asking me this morning about, you know, how do you decide on a title for these, these chapters? Because it's subject, 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 right? Okay, here's the way I do it. It is total chaos at my house when I'm doing this too. So don't think that you're struggling with this alone. It is a challenge. The longer you work in the, the chapter, the the clearer it starts to become. But here's the deal. Sometimes you almost have to go in and study out each paragraph and get that title and study the next paragraph and get it title and study the next one and get it title. And then when you're ready to work on your title for it, what you're able to do is, it, it, I, for me, this is how I handle it. What you want to do is you want to look at paragraph one and say, okay, if I title it this, does paragraph one answer something about that title, right? So, for instance, when you look in chapter 11 and you look that Jesus is teaching spiritual warfare, right? How did he speech, teach spiritual warfare in verses 1 through 4? What was the major subject about? What was he teaching them? How to pray. Is that a spiritual warfare quality? Yes, it is. What about when you get to verses 5 to 8? He talks about, uh, it was a parable, right? And the, the parable had to do with about what? Being persistent in asking, correct? And how did it relate to the subject then of prayer? Because it, it, it flowed from the prayer quality out down into those next few verses, 5 to 8. Basically, be persistent in, in prayer. Don't give up in prayer. Keep asking because in verses 9 and 10, what's going to happen? It, you will receive. He who persists, will it will be given to him. So 1 through tw uh, 13, basically, then the whole thing is about prayer, which relates to spiritual warfare. Then when you get to um, 13, or 14 rather, 14 to 28, there we see the most intensive part 
about spiritual warfare. It's very clearly identified because of all the markings that you should have on your page with, uh, you know, I don't know about you. I marked mine with little angels. And when it's, when it's demons rather than good angels, I color them gray. And when they're good angels, I color them yellow. Does that make sense? One is light and one is dark. And that helps me see the difference. So when I see a bunch of dark gray little angels all over my page, I know those are the spirit realm and it's spiritual or demonic warfare some, of some form. So we saw in 14 to 28 all this spiritual warfare going on. And what did we learn in 14 to 28? What were some of the points that you learned in those verses 14 to 28? Just to review for yourself. Okay, so in that, in that particular point, then what you're seeing is who is the power behind the spiritual warfare? If you're going to have success, it's the authority of God himself, okay? I did see there were lots of different responses. Did you notice? We kind of made a list last week. What were the responses? There were basically about three of them. Some were amazed, then what? Some were accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebub, and then others were demanding signs, right? So there was like three different kinds of uh, responses to the subject that he brings up here. Says, and so then he says, but he knew their thoughts. And now he goes on to explain to those two points, which were the accusatory one and the one who was... Um, uh, demanding signs. He spends the majority of it on the first one, that is those who were accusing him. And he, he sets a scenario up, and, and basically what does he go about doing? What does he prove? Yeah, your thinking on, th on this subject of spiritual warfare, and you're falsely accusing me, is illogical. Right? I mean, really, it's a pretty good uh, defense, wouldn't you say? It's like saying, why would I, ca if I were in the court of Satan, if I were Satan's worker, if I were his disciple or his friend, why would I be casting out his demons? That's illogical, right? So that's what Jesus goes about, he goes about teaching that. Okay, so when we, we flow through there, then the next point he goes into is uh, about those who demand signs. And we see what about the signs? What are the signs that are represented for us in the text? What is brought up? Jonah is one, right? And he says about Jonah, concerning Jonah, what? When Jonah came to Nineveh to preach the word of God to them, right? What did they do? They repented. And when they repented, was it because they saw a sign? No. Jonah gave them no signs. Now, he, would, he may have told them about what God had done for him, but there was no sign done for them. He, Jonah simply did what? He preached the word, and they believed. What about the queen of, uh, how, does, how was she put, the queen of the south, right, which we would, Bathsheba. <laughs> so how did, how did she respond, and what did she respond to? And by the way, she, nobody went to her. She came to him. Who did she come to? 
And when she came to him, why did she come? She wanted to hear the word of God. So when she believed what? She believed what? A sign? No, she believed the word. And so the challenge here that Jesus gives to these who are saying, show us a sign, he's saying, look, there are, th- here are a couple of examples of, by the way, Gentiles, who simply heard my word and believed it. And let me tell you something. They are going to do what? That's right. One day they will stand up at the day of judgment and they will, they will make a, um, a witness, basically, against you because you didn't believe the word, but they did. These are Gentiles, and they're b- simply believing the word. They're not demanding a sign. So your demanding of a sign is he rebukes it. Uh-huh. Exactly. And by the way, I'm really glad he did this because for you and I today, are we getting a sign? Well, there are some, but I mean, but do we, do we have Jesus in our presence to do a miracle is my, is the point. Because that is what he's really trying to point out to them. Is Jesus always going to be around to do a sign? No. And so he's rebuking their demand for a sign basically right he, he really wants them to say to understand no you need to trust and believe the word of God the word of God is sufficient right all right now we move into the last part where he says now about the light and the lamp now what was the point in bringing this part up and how does it pertain to spiritual warfare what was the warning what did you title that paragraph I need to get all of you to stand up and do jumping jacks. <laughs> get your brains moving. Well, in 13, or, or rather 33 uh, to 36, your keyword is light. Okay, there's your clue. Your title should be something about light. What was he telling them about the light? What were they supposed to make sure concerning light? Aha, now what does that mean? Make sure that the light in you is not darkness. What is that telling you? Particularly in the subject of spiritual warfare, since that's our major subject. Okay, There's there's a potential that what you think is light could be darkness, right? So how do you go about finding out whether or not you're actually looking at light and that you're actually living correct light? That's right. You have to go back. So where, in other words, what's your proof text to make sure you're on target? How do you know when you are correct? We were talking about this earlier uh, before class about, you know, when you're, uh, when subjects come up and there's a disagreement about maybe a church doctrine or a certain belief system, how do you address it without a conversation that can be confrontational? You can't, can you? I mean, there has to be. Consider what happened in the early church with the, um, with the apostles. Peter and Paul, for instance, went to blows on a couple of things, right? We see ecumenical councils that are called, and the people were, were brought back together. They had to discuss who was right and who was wrong about s- circumcision or about uh, do the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit in the same way that the Jews do, right? They, ha- they actually had to have discussions about this. So just by the nature of there is a truth, right, 
Jesus or God in his word, he says that you and I are to retain the standard of sound doctrine, correct? How do you do that? How do you retain this, this, the doctrine? Okay, you have to know what the word of God says, and not just having read it, because you and I, in, th- in this conversation that we're having right now even, we know that sometimes you can go in and read something and you're still scratching your head, right? So this is not something you just drop into and casually read and then run away and think you got it. Because it does not work that way. God really equates and he describes his word as a treasure that you dig for. That it's as, as for searching for a treasure or, or digging for gold. And inductive Bible study causes you to slow down, take apart all the pieces, analyze every quality of it, and then bring it all back and put it back together. And in doing that then, you're able to come to an understanding about a certain doctrine or a certain truth right, or a certain understanding about what's said in a certain passage. And the way that you come to that understanding is because you figured it out. You spent a lot of time analyzing and reading and studying and, and asking a bunch of who, what, why, when, where, how questions. So the light in this particular passage, he's saying, look, there can be a light that's darkness. Can you think of any passages in Scripture that talk about that you should Check it out to make sure. There you go. First John chapter 4. Test the spirits to see if they are from God because guess what? What can some of the spirits be? They can be demonic. Oh, excuse me. Does that fit with our subject matter here? If chapter 11 is all about spiritual warfare, he hits one of your paragraphs and that paragraph says, now check to make sure the light in you is actually light, not darkness right? Uh, Paul says of the Bereans that they are of more noble-mindedness because they examined the scriptures to see if what he was saying was correct, okay? So this is checking out the light. Is the light coming from that speaker or that teacher or that pastor or that sermon that I'm hearing? Is it correct light? How do you go about checking that out? You have to compare it with what you know is true Right? This is where I'm always saying, hold fast to those known doctrines. You got those couple of pillars, your known doctrines in the immediate context that helps you rule for your interpretation. Because that way, when light comes in, or someone who says it's light brings you information, then you take that and you lay it next to the real light, and you go, um, there's something off on that. You know, it's close, but there's something... I don't like about it. There's something weird on that. Let me look at this further. And that's examining to see if what has been taught is true, right? Okay, so that's what he does here. In this flow of thought about spiritual warfare, he hits, watch out, be careful that the light in you is actually light. Now, who might be deceived about the light in them that's really not light, according to what we've been looking at in this passage? Those Pharisees and scribes, right, or Sadducees, Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law of Israel, those who were holding fast to the old um, message but rejecting Jesus as the fulfillment of those things which were prophesied. So he's saying you need to be careful that you are not holding fast to something that is in error. And certainly, by the ways of the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, what had they done with the law, even the good law? What had they done with it? 
they had perverted it. They had twisted it. They had added burdens, right? So we see then at the close of this book, all that. Now, there's this one little section in here, 27 and 28, that's a kind of an odd state, a little odd, quirky couple of verses. Again, context is going to help you rule for interpretation. What does 27 and 28 have to do with spiritual warfare? Yeah, and that word, on the contrary, by the way, that's a very strong, I, I, I see Martha's, her head's, yeah, this is it. Okay, so what do you know about that, that you... It's not a contrast, exactly. It is a contrast, but it's stronger than that. It's a very emphatic, so he's actually... It's a rebuke almost, but it's a gentle rebuke, but it is a rebuke. And so, again, here we see Jesus having conflict and not, not holding punches, not, sa- not willing to say, well, I'll just let it slide because I'm so loving and so tolerant, right? No, he's not doing that. He's saying, no, I want to make sure she understands the difference between full truth and partial truth. And what we see in her, there is a seed of truth that's been planted. And God talks about the mustard seed, the small mustard seed. That's all it takes. If it's truly a seed of God's word, and if there's true faith in her heart, a desire to come, God is just, what Jesus has just done for this woman is poured water on it so, so, so that it will grow. So here's what's going on. He says, she says to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Right. So he actually says to her, in essence, it's not enough for you to just think I'm a good man. It's not enough for you to just think I'm even a prophet of God who is performing mighty miracles. How, how many religions are there out there that are founded on people who think that Jesus is simply a good man, but it, he's not the son of God? That's right. There are actually a number of them. And this for you and I as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, this is a definitive point. Jesus is not just a good man. And he's not just a man sent from God. He's not just a man who came and lived on this earth and performed mighty miracles and then went to heaven. He's more than that. We have talked over and over and over about his title being the son of man, right? And what does that mean again? What does it link us back to in Genesis? This, th- that he is the promised seed, right? That the seed would come and that seed would crush the head of Satan. He would undo all the damage that we did in the garden in destroying our relationship between us and God, right? And us and the earth for that matter. So when Jesus came, he came and he went about doing all these miracles and signs and wonders that literally were demonstrating his power to undo, to atone for, to reconcile, to um, 
uh, recover basically our relationship with God. So he's saying to her, this woman, on the contrary, woman, not just blessed is the womb that, that bore me, not just blessed am I because I'm a good man and I've come and done these things. Because the implication there is, wow, you're, uh, blessed is that womb because you're such a good guy. That's kind of what she's saying there. He, she was not uh, revering him as in the totality of who he was. She was only seeing him through a little tiny prism, a little teeny little, like a peephole in a, in a door. She, she needs that whole door open, and so he contradicts her. He says, on the contrary, you must believe the whole counsel of God's word about who I, the seed, the son of man, am. And you must obey it. Woohoo! Everybody, are you are you guys catching this spiritual warfare again? Right? Do you see it now? So this is how when I struggle with giving a title to a chapter, what I do is I go uh, paragraph by paragraph, and I look to see if I choose. Sometimes I choose two titles, and I lay them up side by side, and then I go through my paragraph titles and say. Does it relate to this? Yes. Does it relate to this? Yes. Does it relate to that? Oh, no, it really doesn't. Not at all. Okay, well, let's try the other title. Does it relate to this? Yes. Does it relate to this? Yes. Does it relate to this? Yes. Oh, yay, I'm on a yes roll, right? Eventually, I can come to see how each paragraph relates to the subject that I title my, my chapter. Um, it can be a, a real challenge to get there. And it takes a lot more time than sometimes we are willing to put into it. But I just encourage you to keep trying and keep working on that. It, and your titles may not be exactly the same as mine, and that's okay. As long as they're generally in the ballpark, we shouldn't be too far off from one another. And as long as you can legitimately, legitimately see how each of your paragraphs relate to that title. Are you okay? Does that make sense? Does anybody have a question on how you go about finding a title? Because now we're going to do chapter 12, we've got to do the same thing. We've got to try to figure out in chapter 12, each chapter or each paragraph has to relate to the title that you chose, whatever it was. Um, uh, I know Susan and I both said we were talking about how we started with like 15 titles. What did we do? What did I, I know what I did. How did you go about getting each of the titles that you did come up with? Into one sentence. Okay. So what she did is she looked at subject, 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 and gave it title, 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 based on those subjects. But that's too confusing. Somewhere in there, each of those subjects have a common tie together. There's a common uh, goal or purpose that the author is listing them for. Are you following? Okay, so that's our goal today is to, to figure that part out. Where are we going in that? Okay, so that kind of was a nice little review of where we came from last week. It brings you up to, uh, up to speed of where we are now. Hopefully it kind of warmed up your brain a little bit because it's hard sometimes when we first come in here, your brain's just not quite in gear. But you're kind of in the flow on this right now, right? Where are we in the timeline of Jesus' ministry um, on earth? Do you remember? Yeah, we're getting really close to the end. We're in those last maybe six months or so. We're getting, we're approaching his cross. We see that in chapter 9. Let's go back and look at it together just to review it. 
Um, it's 9:51. I want you to see it because I want I do want you to mar- mark it in some way in your in your brain so that there's a good recall of this because this is kind of one of those it's like in the God uh, when we did Revelation there was a pivotal point in Revelation where there was kind of a turn uh, of things and the same thing ha- is happening here in 51 he says and when the days were approaching for his ascension he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Now, there's more information around that that, go, that ties in just specifically with chapter 9. But that statement right there shows you there's a pivotal change for him in his focus, right? Where prior to that, what was his focus? Yeah. Right. He was... He was, actually, in before that, he was teaching them. He was demonstrating. Uh, Susan, you brought up a point earlier with in our co- private conversation uh, about something that you noticed concerning Jesus, that he hasn't done what? Since, since the middle of chapter 9. So what we saw then in chapter 1 through 9 was Jesus doing what? Miracles, signs, wonders, presenting himself, proclaiming himself to be the Christ, uh, demonstrating to the crowds that he had the power of God with him, right? And those, and, and according to uh, John chapter 14, it is just one example. In John 14, it says that if you don't, I and the Father are one. And if you don't believe that's true, believe me because of the miracles. The miracles are, the, are a testimony that what I'm saying to you is true. And then in John chapter uh, 3, uh, Nicodemus says, No man can do miracles, lest God be with him. So miracles were the signs. So 1 through 9, as you very carefully pointed out nicely, by the way, I like that, that that was what he was doing that first nine chapters. But now, starting in chapter 9 forward, now we make that pivotal Uh, term where Janice brings up, he starts to train his disciples. Now comes an intensity of training. Before that, he was gathering disciples, and he was, I think he was kind of weeding through. He had, at one point in there, had chosen a specific 12 who would be his uh, apostles specific. Now he is, from nine forward, he's first he trains the, the 12 and allows them to go out on their own. Like, a, like our college kids, and we send them out the door, you know, and it's pretty scary, but we, p- we put them out there to see how well they'll do, and they come home for college vacations, and we, we prop them back up, and we fill their pocketbooks with more money, and then we send them back out, right? Well, that's what Jesus was doing with them. And then the very next chapter after uh, that was uh, him preparing the 70. He, and so he expands his ministry of outreach, and he builds on with the 70. So now then in chapter 9, though, when he begins to do that training and sending out, training and sending out, started in 9 when he says now he's determined to go to Jerusalem. His a time of ascension is approaching. Now, what is ascension talking about? When he says he's about to ascend, his time, his days for approaching his ascension. What is that speaking of? That's right, his resurrection. Okay. So what we know that means is his cross is approaching. He's getting close to the the cross, and now he's honing in to 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 do this preparatory stuff. So then, what happened was when you hit um, uh, 
11, then you see him beginning to teach on what we saw in 11, spiritual warfare. He is, again, preparing them. He's been sending them out, giving them experience, and they're coming back in. He's retraining, and he's sending them out, right? Well, now in 11, they're coming in. He's got them before him, and he's talking to them and training them about spiritual warfare. You tell me, why do you think in chapter 11 it was important to do that? Why do you think 11 is here? Absolutely. Do you think the warfare did get more intense? Certainly did for him, <laughs> right? And what was going to happen with the disciples after he goes? Who becomes the target after Jesus is dead? Those disciples. So the, spiritual, the training for spiritual warfare is an essential. Has the spiritual warfare lessened as the generations have come and gone and passed? Are we still having spiritual warfare? When, when you consider what the other scriptures teach us about the approaching days of the end time, what are we told about those days? They're going to be, they're going to intensify. It's going to get, men's hearts are going to what? They're going to grow cold. They're going to be lovers of self rather than the lovers of God, right? It's going to get worse. Hey, girls and boys, we are in these, we're even closer to the end time than they were. So the, the intensity of the fight, the intensity of the spiritual warfare is definitely increasing as the generations pass. Because why? If you think about who who is the, the, the spiritual warfare against? Primarily, there you go. And there are scriptures that actually that say that. He knows his time is approaching. He knows his days are short. When we studied um, Revelation, we looked in Daniel, it talked about that. I remember in Matthew, it talks about it. Dan, um, where was the other one? Uh, but in any of it, he, he talks about, he knows the days are short. And so he intensifies. And during those um, seven years that are going to come at the end, again, it's going to even yet intensify more, right? I feel badly for those who have to go through those days. And I'm so thankful that I believe in a pre-rapture <laughs> 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 because, I mean, yeah, yeah. So, um, so what we have then is the spiritual warfare has been taught in 11. Now we're moving on to 12. Spiritual warfare was going to prepare them because spiritual warfare was coming. And it was going to intensify, and they needed to know how to handle it. So he walks them through the prayer and how to defeat it and how, what to watch for in yourself and um, what you need to fully believe. You can't just think Jesus is a good man. You have to believe the whole gospel, right? Now we're in 12. What has been the major subject in 12? Getting ready for what? To be prepared for what? For? There you go. His coming. It's for his second coming. Isn't that interesting? Jesus hasn't left the first time. He's already talking to them about his second coming. I'm confused about that a little bit because it says the kingdom. Uh-huh. Again, you just, you think it's the second coming and you're like. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. 
it's okay, good. But but on the whole, if you look at this, he's saying a, he he did use the words keywords in there, which were what? Give me your keywords. Beware, be careful, be on your guard, right? So it's really a heightened sense, uh, almost of. It is an anxiety chapter in a way, and it's hysterical that he's saying in the middle of all this, don't worry. <laughs> and you're like, you just made me worried, <laughs> right? Okay, but the, the, the warning signs, the beware of, do, uh, and then he says, but don't be afraid. Be aware of it, but don't be afraid, right? He says, be ready, be on your guard, um, be waiting, be on the alert, uh, and blessed is those he find when he finds them so being ready, in other words. Uh, and then he says to another one, get ready, and, and those who don't get ready, then there's an, a consequence for them. So that anticipation of getting ready, then your next question would be, okay, that's a verb. Getting ready for what? What's the noun? His coming. And so what you see then, if that's true, and you see these, these indicators all through here, then it's about being ready and, don't being, and not worrying, but worrying about what, from beginning to end, it's all about his coming. So if you title this somewhere in the category of be ready uh, and, or be prepared or be on your guard or um, uh, what might be another title, be in readiness, right? Be on the alert, or be f even the one being faithful or being a faithful steward until his coming. That's another part of it, too. But anything that indicates that verb form of being ready and then merge that together with the his coming is going to give you a good title. Do you guys want to share some of your titles with me? If you have been given that as a, as a, very good. Excellent. Although it doesn't use heavenly kingdom in here, but his his coming. Yeah. Be ready for his coming. One of the things you do want to do when you're titling, if at all possible, is use words directly from the text. If you add in something like that, it kind of throws in a, di a different point, and it's it, it has its own little bent, and so you want to be real careful not to lead people to think it might say something that it really doesn't. So, yeah. Because I don't even think... Uh, well, the kingdom is mentioned once in 32. Oh, yeah, I've got it taught. You're right. Okay, so, but seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So, all right, so that, that gets us started then. What we want to do is go through chapter 12, and we want to look then at each of these subjects, how you title each of the paragraphs that you have, and then as we do that, we will discuss over here the subjects that come up, and we'll try to expound on them just a little bit so you, you grab a bigger picture on it. So title will be, let's, we call it a theme. That just means title, chapter title. Um, I'm, I'm going to put be ready. And faithful. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, lots of a lot a lot of verb action words in this. So be ready and be faithful until his coming. I kind of blended both qualities of the preparatory work but also the faithfulness quality in it because it does seem to me like there's both of those in here. And the major uh subject is about his coming. Okay? Right. And I also think it's really, yeah, because the all those, how does he, when he talks about the now quality versus the future quality, where does he place the emphasis of importance? On the future. He, but for you and I, where do we generally put the emphasis? On the here and now. We get so wrapped around what's going on in this present life that we lose Either we don't ever have it or we lose sight of, right? It's one of the reasons I think Jesus often, it seems like there are several verses in Scripture where it talks about basically setting your eyes upon Jesus, right? The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, right? And, and he says that we're to do the same, that we are to endure for that which is coming, and that's how we're to do it is to follow his example. Okay, so your first paragraph then is one through three. And in one to three, what is your subject there? That's exactly right. It speaks about, and how does he put it? It's very interesting because for you and I, it, he says, beware of the what? Of the leaven of the hypocrisy. Now, why does that word leaven become so important here? What is leaven? It's that yeast which causes it to grow. So what is the implication then about hypocrisy that these Pharisees are teaching and are demonstrating? D does it? When people teach, when people teach, even false teaching, when, when a False teaching gets its little toe in the door of a church. What happens? Yeah, if it's, n if it's not, remember um, in the letter to the churches where he says you tolerate that woman Jezebel, right? If you tolerate a teaching or you tolerate a sin, what happens is then the rest of the congregation is affected by that. Either what? What are the two possibilities really with it? You have to make a choice. Is the leaven out or, or is it in? And if it's in, then what happens to the whole congregation? It spreads. This is why their hypocrisy is like leaven. And that should be in that title. So let's title this, Beware of the Hypocrisy. Beware of the, I'm sorry, of the leaven of, the, of hypocrisy. Oops, I gotta spell it right. H Y P O C R. I always spell that one with an I for someone. Now, I was gonna say, when Jesus 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I think one of the interesting things on just looking at this, p this particular paragraph is to look at that word hypocrisy by definition. Did you define that one? Did you anybody look up, up and do a word study? Tell me what you found, Terry. Okay, a pretender, an actor. What was the other one? Okay, I can't do that word. That's too big. Dissimulation. Insincerity. How about that one? Okay, there you go. Same thing. Insincerity. Um, and it's number 5272, if y'all didn't look it up. 5272. I'm having trouble thinking today. I don't know why. 5270, not that I don't always have trouble thinking, but, <laughs> okay, so hypocrisy by definition is to be a pretender, an actor, and insincere. So if you've got a Pharisee or, or someone like that in your midst in the church, they are a pretender. They're pretending to be the one who protects the word of God, who stands on the word of God, who or is even considered a respected leader concerning the word of God. And yet what they are teaching and what they are promoting others to engage in is contrary to God's word, right? So how does he follow it here? He says a big but. Anytime there's a but, what does that tell you? If there's the word but, what is that? Indication of a contrast. So how many contrasts did you find as you went through chapter 12? A bunch, right? I mean, I don't know if you, if you did or you didn't look for them, but if you didn't, if you didn't mark your butts, you missed a really big um, indicator that gives you a real clear idea of, of the flow of thought that's going on here. The butts give you, the. Uh, for instance, beware of the leaven of hypocrisy. If hypocrisy is someone who's a pretender, right, they're actually insincere. They're, they're like an actor. But he says, but what's going to happen with them? What's the contrast? They're going to be revealed. It will be exposed. That gives you a very clear understanding about, you know, as you are waiting for the coming of the Lord, you can rest assured there are going to be plenty of pretenders in the, in the Christian realm that you walk in. So these are not people outside the church. These are people inside, right? How, how do you compare the spiritual warfare that you have faced through the years as a Christian? Do you feel like it's more difficult when it's within the church or without the church? Within. Why? There you go. And how hard is it to speak up against a pretender or someone who is teaching something wrong that's really wrong?
Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So it makes it really tough. It makes it, you know, I, you know, I really pray uh, that you guys always feel open to be able to challenge in this classroom. If there is something that said you need to challenge, because honestly, this group has done the homework. So it's going to be parsed out. But the, the idea that, for instance, in the early church, when they had conflicts, they often held ecumenical councils to, ar- to iron them out, or they would meet in Jerusalem at a council. They, and they went toe-to-toe with it. Paul went toe-to-toe against Peter, right? Peter went against others. They did not just let it slide. They didn't just say, oh, we're going to be loving and tolerant, and we're not going to disagree. I'm disagreed. Yeah, I hate that. Oh, let's just agree to disagree. I just want to hit hit people when they say that, really. <laughs> it's kind of like that is condescending. It's like saying, uh, I know you're wrong, but we're just going to move on, right? And, and it's like, no, you, d- you have to, especially when it's doctrine. To me, th- if there is anything worth having an argument over, it's those things which pertain to your eternal salvation, right? And, wh- and where Jesus speaks about the... Fi- the uh, the Pharisees and the, the uh, lawyers back in chapter 11, one of the things he talks about is those who won't even allow others to come to truth, right? They put obstacles in their path, and they won't allow them to even come into the, to the way of truth. It says it actually more clearly in some of the other uh, synoptic gospels where it talks about th- that in the end, what you do is you make them twice what? Yeah, twice the, the son of Satan and, and, and twice the, the sons of hell because of what you, you teach and you don't correct. So we have to come to a place, I think, as Christians that um, I, I'm actually battling um, this on a very, very minor, I think it's minor, <laughs> we'll see. But, I mean... These spiritual warfare situations, they come up all the time in my life because I'm a teacher, so I'm, a, I'm the target uh, all the time. Which, to whom much is given, much is required. Thank you for that reminder, Susan. <laughs> does make me feel better. <laughs> but, but, it's ha- but it's still really hard. And all of you, I know you face it too. When you're in your home environments and you're, you know, with your family, with your 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 friends either in or in work environments whatever wherever you are your light is shining and there's going to be someone who does not like that light and and it it may or may not even be a spiritual subject but the discord will show up and the and the argument will come up but i can tell you this when it actually is spiritual when the debate is about whether a doctrinal thing that's being taught in a certain church or in a certain denomination or in a certain um, Sunday school class, as you brought up, if that is not challenged, then are you being the sensible and faithful servant that God wants you to be? Are you retaining the standard of sound doctrine that God says that we're to do? Remember the story I gave you guys years ago about about what a standard is? Do you guys remember that story? It's been a long time ago. But when I went to Greece with Precept Ministries, they took us to a, a mountaintop that overlooked uh, the, um, what, what it's called, Mars Hill and the 
the Acropolis. Is that what it's called, the Acropolis? Okay. We were on another mountain looking over this, and, and where we were sitting, there was a little hole in the ground, and all the people, there's like 200 people on this bus tour, and they had all sat all around the edges, and I meandered in late because I'm chatting. And uh, so then I needed to find a place to sit, and there wasn't one. Well, I found this little uh, spot in the ground where it was basically a hole. And down inside, there was a lot of trash and stuff down there. And I thought, oh, well. So I sat on the edge of that where my legs could hang down, which so I actually sat more like a chair, which was really good for me as it turned out. But as I was sitting there, by this time, we had been become buddies, right, in the on the bus. And everybody loves to pick on the, the dumb blonde in the group, which is me. So they were picking on me, oh, Katie, you're sitting in the trash can, right? Well, then the, tur the um, not the Turkish, the, um, the Greek tour guide, she's her overheard this conversation. She came over to me and kind of cozied up next to me. And she says, this is not a trash can. This is a standard. And I said, oh, okay. I didn't have a clue what that meant. She says, do you see the stone down underneath all the trash? I said, yes. And there was a little scooped uh, stone, kind of like a big pasta bowl, right? And she says, that is a standard. And she said, over here on the hill, and she pointed over to the other side, and she said they would um, they would quarry out the clay and and the soils that they used for making pottery. Out of that, they would make their pottery. Then, in order for it to be accepted in the um, agora for sailing th things in, it had to fit the standards. So sh they would take these pots once they would make, they would bring it back, they would lay it down into the standard, and if it fit the standard, they put this cool little wire thing with a seal on it, and they would seal it to mark and to indicate that it had been inspected and that it, it fit the standard. But you know what they do if it didn't fit the standard? She said they would take it back over to the hillside and, and break it. They didn't even keep it. They didn't want it to accidentally get in to the system somehow. So they would go and they would break it. And, and when she told me that, I got goosebumps from head to, to toe. And I said, that's what that verse says. Retain the standard of sound doctrine. If it doesn't fit the standard, break it. It's of no value. And if you go back to chapter 11 where he says, make sure that the light in you is light, that's kind of what it's saying there. Take your light and lay it down into the standard. Does it fit the standard? Do, and if it does, great. But if it doesn't, what must you be willing to under, undergo in your own life? Being broken, right? Being you, you repent, right, exactly, over and over and over, right. But, you know, in, in, a, in a classroom like this, this is where we can do that. We can, we can rub off the rough edges. We can correct the minor things that need to be realigned and get them straightened out. If you're teachable, right, if you're willing to allow the Holy Spirit and willing to allow the Word of God to be the standard, that you lay your life into and see whether or not you're lining up. But if you're not willing to do that, then can, co can come some problems. And that's when pride starts to come in, when church denominations begin to have a, a greater influence in your life. And it's, and it's harder for you to come around eventually. You will. You'll still get there. If you're God's chi child, he's watching over you. I believe he's going to help you get there. But sometimes, I mean, I, th I have seen... Some passages, there was a passage I read in Timothy this week because we were studying on blasphemy where uh, Paul, uh, Paul is saying about these two guys, Harmanus and 
jamborees or whatever. He says, I've turned them over to Satan to, that God will teach them not to blaspheme. And so I thought that's very interesting that, they, that there was a discipline that had to take place in their life because they wouldn't learn the easy way, right? So Paul was allowing s- Satan to get a hold of them and sift them, right? And to k- kind of a Job experience, let them experience things the hard way in order for God to eventually bring them around into truth, hopefully, right? All right, so when we look at the hypocrisy of leaven, how do, what does that have to do with the concept of being ready and being faithful until he's coming? Yeah, that's right. And guess what this is warning us of is that throughout all history, from the days of the birthing of the church on until we get to those end times, we are going to face hypocrisy, the leaven of hypocrisy all around us all the time. There are going to be pretenders in our in our midst there are going to be people who look good on the outside but inside are filled with what dead man's bones right the teacup that looks pretty on the outside but inside it's full of wickedness and filthiness we just studied all that didn't we so so this was really a nice little flow here so he has warning he is warning them beware of the leaven and do and know this guess what it will be exposed. When will it be exposed? At his coming. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay, one through three. Four to seven. What's our major subject there? What's the key word in four through seven? Fear. Fear, 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 and the word afraid. So what is the contrast in there? Fear and don't fear. So fear who and don't fear who? That's right. Fear God, but don't fear man. Fear God, not man. There's my title for that particular paragraph. And now within that, let's talk about about not fearing. There's a one through three. Let's see. This is going to be four to seven. And it says, um, well, we didn't do the contrast up here on hypocrisy. We could have. But if you go through there in verse 2 and 3, there's, there is nothing covered up. What? That is going to be revealed. What is hidden? What? Will be made known. What is whispered? What? Will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Isn't that amazing? So at his coming, all these things will be exposed right? All right, now fearing. Let's look at the word fear. Do not fear those who do what? Okay, do not fear those who kill the body. Now, why do you think he's speaking about that subject? That's right, because they're about to see a body be definitely killed, right, when Jesus goes to the cross. And what else is is he preparing them for? That's right. And did they? They, As far as I understand, all but one were martyred, right? I think John was the only one that was not, but I might be off on that, but I think that was correct. Okay, do not fear, but fear the one who what?
Okay, after he has killed. Yeah. Okay, let's get this up here before I f forget my flow of thought here. Uh, has authority to cast in hell, hell. Cast into hell. Okay, so that's in 12.5. And so there are two points there. That First is that he, has the, uh, he is the one who kills, and he is the one who has authority to kill. Now, we looked at a couple of verses on this. One was in Deuteronomy. How did Deuteronomy 32, and this is page 109 in your homework, how did Deuteronomy support this particular two points in here? Did anybody in here have a problem with the idea that God is the one that kills? <laughs> Nobody. Oh, we're all good with that. <laughs> Why are you good with the fact that God kills? Why is that okay with you? Okay, uh, that's a really good point. For one thing, he is the all-knowing, right, the all-seeing God, and he knows the whole totality of it, not only of that immediate situation when a person may die, right, but what else? What else does he see at the totality of? The heart? The beginning from the end? He knows the whole plan? He knew, as a matter of fact, one of the places it says that he numbers, what? The hair upon our head. So he knows, he knows it all. So he is the one that can, and then what about the character of God? Does that play into this for you at all? What do you know about God that makes you feel comfortable with allowing him the privilege to both give life and death? That's right. He is full, he is completely just in whatever he does. He's just because he is the one who is the lawgiver, right, and the law enforcer, and he knows what right is from wrong. He has set the laws for us. So there's that quality. What else? Okay, he is the, okay, he, well, he does, and he knows the end from the beginning, but about his character, he does not lie, so his decision about allowing you to die or not al allowing you to die, either way, preserving life or taking life, is based on... Okay. He's righteous. Yes. Neither height nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor things, right. All these things, nothing can uh, isolate you or take you from what? The love of God. Oh, we, you know, almost always love is the first one we say. But what about the love of God? Have we seen in this particular text as we move forward that we see a God who loves and protects and provides and Right? And so the, the idea that this is a God that has, has the power and the authority to do it, but we are okay with it because of who he is. Right? So he has the authority. So what does it say in Deuteronomy 32? Somebody have that one handy? What does he say there?
Okay, so he gives life and he puts to death. When you consider this in light of what we have going on also in abortion clinics around America today, and this is also a touchy subject and people don't like people to poke a finger in their eye about it, but what is the problem with other people making a determination to take a life? There you go. It is not their place to make that choice. Now, if they've made a mistake, if they have committed a sin, or if they have gotten pregnant and didn't want to, what are the other options that are out there in our world? Adoption. Give your baby up for adoption. Somebody else would love to have your baby. And they would, t they would be the best mom and dad ever, right? Give your baby that chance. And now, I get it that people want to hide their sin, so they want to just dispose of it, right? Okay, but you don't have that right. God is the one who gives life, and it is God then who also puts to death. And he says, um, in 12.7, what does he say to us then? Yeah, so let's look, let's, in Luke 12, 7, he says, do not fear because you don't have to fear the fact that God is the one in charge of life and death. You don't have to fear that. Why? Because he values life and he values who? You, us, we, right? He values life and he values you. Yeah. And for for that very fact, the fact that he that he knows us, he also knows our path, where we're going, where we've been, of what value we are to his kingdom, either by staying or by going. Sometimes by going, we're of more value than staying. Uh, Paul talks about that, doesn't he? Right? He says that that you know, he he he'd rather go. <laughs> but if it's a more benefit for them for him to stay, then he'll stay. So he's submissive to the authority of God over whether he lives or dies. And he's okay with it either way. I kind of feel that way. I'm like, I'm ready to go. Let's go, God. But, you know, as long as God leaves me here, guess what I'm going to be doing? I'm going to be right here teaching. Even if I'm only talking to myself. <laughs> okay, so, so if you're at 4 to 7, now we've got 8 to 12. What is your key words there? There's two of them, and they contrast one another. Well, there's the subject of blasphemy, and, I, and it does not surprise me that that's the one that really catches the eye, because that is a subject matter that everybody wants to understand better, the subject of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But before he speaks about blasphemy, he gives a, con a couple of contrasts, right? What does he say? Confessing or denying. Very interesting. You guys have got to look at this, though. The way this gets laid out, um, let's see if I can do it. Uh, it's 8 to 12. Let's go up here. See if I can make it work up here. He's, let's do the contrasts. 
if you confess me before men, that's an eight, then what will I do? It's really more of a conclusion than it is a contrast, but then I will do what? Yeah, I will confess you before the angels of God. Now those are little angels that I do like this. And then I color them yellow because they're good angels, not dark angels. Okay? So I will confess you before the angels of God. Then there, the next one again is he who denies me. before men. So confess me, I will confess you. Denies me, he will be denied. Okay, so that's 8 and 9, verse 8 and 9. Now, I put that up there very deliberately because I think by doing this, it's going to help you come to an interpretation about what's said that follows it. What is the very first word in the next sentence? And. What does that tell you? Yeah. And makes all of this relate to what the next point is, right? So the contrast between confess and deny, right, he who denies me will be denied. If you confess me, I will then confess you. Those contrasts or those opposing points or those conclu conclusion statements, however you want to look at them, they almost look like contrasts, but they're really more like a conclusion. If you do this, this is going to be the result. And if you do this, this is going to be the result, right? And now he says, and. So what follows and? If you speak a word against the Son of Man, but Then who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Who blasphemes against, oh, sorry, I forgot to turn that off. <laughs> I know. I got to turn it off, but I don't know how. Oh, it's over here. No. Hush. By the time I get it off, you got the whole song. Are you ready to play some Mario with me now? <laughs> okay. <laughs> he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Okay. Uh, and that's in verse 10. Okay. So now we have an and. And connects... The word and connects what was said before to the following statement. So again, it's almost like 
a conclusion statement or it could be a con it looks also can look like a contrast either way let me look in here and see really quickly here um, yeah, it, the word but is in there, so you get, uh, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. So the word but indicates that there's a clear contrast right there, right? So how many of you researched out the subject of blaspheming of the Holy Spirit? She asked you to do that on your own. She did not give us very much guidance. It really left you a little bit vulnerable, I think. But again, um, this is one of those teachable moments for us in the, in the classroom. We want to talk about the process of coming to an understanding of what it's talking about, blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, that would result in not having uh, forgiveness, right? Okay, so the first thing you want to do is do a word study, right? Did you do your word study? So what does blasphemy mean? Let's do that part together first. Okay. What is the number? 987. And what does it mean? Okay, I like that one. Profanely. F A. Comes short of the reverence. Okay, comes short of the reverence. R E V E R A N. Required. Uh, and I would even say not just required, but do, right? I'm going to add that word do because it's, it's, because in the, in the examples that we've seen in scripture so far where the subject of blasphemy is coming up. One of them was last chapter under spiritual warfare, right? Where the Pharisees accused Jesus of doing what? Casting out Satan by Beelzebub. So in doing that, what are they saying about Jesus? That he is actually of something evil, right? Okay, so to do that, if you know, in the scenario of where they were in history and time, for a person to have cast that dispergence upon Jesus because they're not yet convinced he is the seed, the Christ, the Son of God, would you say that falls under this first statement that if you speak a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven? It can be forgiven. It's not that it's an absolute emphatic it will, but the opportunity is there. What, what is the determining quality or factor for any forgiveness? Uh, the heart? I'm sorry, I hear repentance. There has to be some kind of repentance, an acknowledgement or a turning from what you thought to something that now is different. Um, it's turning from darkness into light. It's, it's saying he's of Satan, but now saying, oh, I see he's not of Satan, he's actually of God, right? So you have to turn your mind or turn your opinion. So there are these rules that we have, and I've got a list of them on my sheet that you'll get. I'm just going to read them through for you right now. There's some rules that we always go back to. Same ones as always. Tell me the first two. Number one, context rules for 
interpretation. So you let your immediate context hold the most weight for getting a sound interpretation. We really learned that one about that word peace, right? Where there's like a gazillion ways of looking at that, what that might mean, the word peace. Okay, so you have to let your context rule. So as we're looking at this subject about blasphemy here, he's, he's, he's holding it within the realm of a specific point he's making, and he's probably only giving us one quality of it. It's not its entirety of teaching, correct? So make sure that the immediate context rules as heaviest for your interpretation. So it's context rules or context is king, however you want to say that. And very good. Never violate your known doctrines. Okay, so you got those two things already on the plate. Now let me add a few, let me add a few more. Say it again. Yeah, you do know them. I've got, I'm going to beat them into you until you know. But, uh, you know, to be reminded that, because here's what happens. You hit a verse like this and you're going, oh, I'm scratching my head. What does that really mean? What does that exactly mean? I don't exactly understand that. Well, if I don't pull you back to say, okay, first of all, don't violate no doctrine, immediate context rules for interpretation. What does that do for you right there? Emotionally, what has that done for you? <sighs> You go, okay, oh yeah, oh yeah, okay. So now you've got a pragmatic mind going on. Now instead of this fear and this anxiety that was kind of consuming your thoughts about this subject you don't quite understand, you're going, oh yeah, oh yeah, I've got some, I've got some rules I can follow. Yay, that makes me feel much better. There are standards. We have a standard of sound doctrine. This goes back to chapter 11 where he says, make sure the light in you is true light. Measure everything against the standard. That's true. So those two things, first of all. Then, there, here's I'm going to give you three more points. Number, number three. Pull in any previous statements from his ri writings that relate to the subject of salvation, who uh, basically salvation and who is saved, and this subject of blasphemy or acts of blasphemy that are presented through the text. So you would need to very carefully, and had have to have a lot of time, but you need to go back to chapter 1 and progressively work your way up to where we're at and see are there any examples, and we know there are, we just talked about one, where they accused Jesus of committing an evil act when in fact he was committing a good act. So if blasphemy is to slander or to speak profanely of holy things, that would be to speak uh, unholy, that saying Jesus is not of God, that he's, not, that he's of Satan as opposed to being truly of God. So you want to go in, you want to look for all those within the immediate text of Luke, right? Then guess where your next place is? After you've looked into Luke to see what do you learn about the subject of blasphemy, where else would you go? The whole counsel of God's word. So can you see how you've just grown into a really big study? This can be its own huge su subject stu of study all by itself, which we're not going to do this morning. But I'm going to give you your guidelines that if you want to spend more time on this, you now will have kind of a rule of thumb and say, okay, do my word study. Retain the standard of sound doctrine. Don't violate my known doctrines. Let the immediate text rule for context. Go into Luke and see what else Luke tells me about this subject. Now go to the whole council. I'm going to have to do that by using a concordance, looking up that word, and seeing where else those words are used. Okay, yes? Yes, I am. Good job. Because people talk about that there is an unforgivable sin. 
right? That is a false doctrine that is out there in the churches today. And it's in many denominations, and it's in the minds of many believers, because what they do is they come across one verse, they pull it out of its context, isolate it, and handle it all by itself without pulling in everything else. What is another thing you really need to do in order to handle this particular statement and get a proper interpretation? What else might you want to do? Can you think of something else? Whole counsel, all of Luke, word study. Okay, yes? And if you, what, uh, our subject specifically is blasphemy and what happens to you if you commit this act of blasphemy, right? So what, if, if the result of this is it's not going to be forgiven him, what is the result of a person that's not forgiven? They go to hell. So what might you now need to do more study on? What other subjects? People on salvation, the subject of salvation. Who gets saved? Who doesn't get saved? What prevents a person from getting saved, right? Okay, are there any sins that are listed anywhere in Scripture that are definitively saying that if you don't do this, you are going to hell? And the answer is, well, yeah, there's kind of one real important one. To, to deny, that's right, but if you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. What does it mean to believe in him? It means to, what did Jesus say to the woman when she said, blessed is your womb that bore you? He said, on the contrary, woman, what? Blessed is he who? Who? That's right. Who believes the whole counsel of God's word is what the implication there is, but believes the word of God and obeys it. That's how you get saved. What has been shown to us in Luke so far about salvation? Who, get, who is it that gets healed and who gets to be told, go in peace, people of faith, right? So are you telling me, now if your interpretation on this is that this is one sin, that if you, quote, blaspheme the Holy Spirit, if that is something that's really specific and distinct, and I'm not exactly sure how, what they would narrow it down to, but if, if that is your belief, then you have to clearly define what that means, right? And then what you would be saying is it does not matter if you believe. It does not matter if you repent. It does not matter if you confess it. It does not matter if you believe everything else about the word of the gospel. You are going to hell because you did that. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So, okay. Well, you know, when you're going to come to a conclusion on something that's kind of a difficult, it's kind of like that one that's in Second Timothy that says. Um, Kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you by the laying on of my hands. So some people pull that out and say, well, oh, see, spiritual gifts are given by a person laying their hands on them and praying for them. Is that true? No, because what are, we, what are we violating if we do that? The known doctrine about how you get a spiritual gift. So when it comes to something that's not will not be forgiven him, what you have to say is, what is my known doctrine about who gets forgiven and who doesn't? Who does get forgiven? Those who, who w will come into faith. Those who will do what? 
believe, do exactly what Jesus says to the woman back in 11 and believe the, the word of God and obey it. So if you're willing to obey, uh, believe the word of God, the full gospel of, of what he has to say, and obey it, you will be saved. So then, then this does not apply then, does it? Okay, so you can't take this verse all by itself and, and make a, a church doctrine based on it and then teach it as if it's an absolute um, all by itself truth, right? Because you're going to violate your other known doctrines about the subject of salvation, who gets forgiven and who doesn't. So then you have to go back to and say, okay, well, if it doesn't mean that, you, that you're never forgiven for this quote, active blasphemy. What is it saying there? Well, back up and look at the contrast that, f that came before it. If you confess me, I will confess you. If you deny me, I will deny you. If you speak a word against me, that, th that can be forgiven. But if you speak a word against the Holy Spirit, it cannot be forgiven. So what is, he, what is he saying here? If this is actually showing some kind of a contrast, what is the contrast about? What do you think the contrast is? What do you think the statement or the point is that, uh, of what he's... Okay. Okay, one through three. Is, well, we're in four to seven, but yeah. But hypocrisy is the pretender... Um, that they're going to be exposed. I don't know that that falls quite there, but okay. Yeah. Are there sins that cannot be forgiven? There's really only one. It's rejecting Jesus himself rejecting the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just read a couple of things here for you. Um, yes, very good. Romans chapter 1, that's one of my verses. Romans chapter 1 talks about this kind of denial. And he says it's, it's the one who, who denies the truth but embraces the lie. And instead of worshiping the creator, they end up worshiping the creation, right? That which was created. And so then it says as it moves on down through that text, what does God say about people who refuse the love of the truth? What does God end up doing? turns their minds over to the depravity of their mind. It's exactly what he does. So he turns them over to their own depravity, their own rejection, their own refusal to believe truth. And in doing that, you then blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, and that will not be forgiven. You didn't say the sins against the body are the worst, and that's what, for some reason, when I did that, I'm like, well, the Holy Spirit lives inside me. And so, and that was one of the things that came, uh, I don't know how much I'm supposed to do for you, but this is the dwelling place of God within you. You know, this is, this is blood sacrifice. Yes. Beyond it's about, it, right. So a person who, you know, if we go back and look at a lot of things that, they, that the Pharisees have even displayed, have been displayed through what has been written in Luke so far, we see them doing this kind of irreverence against God, against God's word, handling with irreverence their responsibilities that they have to protect 
the truth, the gospel that they have at that time, which is Old Testament, but they weren't doing it. They were actually doing the opposite. So what they were actually doing is reviling against, right? They were treating as unholy that which is holy. And in doing that, it's an act of blasphemy. Um, one of my commentaries kind of came about it this way. Uh, to not acknowledge truth about the Holy Spirit then would to be blasphemy of the Spirit leaving you in sin. It's willful and deliberate denial of truth or worse, replacing truth for a lie. To reject God's Spirit, this would make salvation impossible. Now you got it? That's good. You, you were, that's what I meant. That was good, Lisa. Woo! I am so glad. See, that's that's what I like about this class. Everybody, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to remember too. It sounds real. It I it's lingering. Yes, that's Thessalonians, right? Yes. Go, let's look at this though also here. Go to chapter Hebrews 4. I want to look at verses 1 to 7. And we know this one really well because he, we've done Hebrews inductively as a, as a group, for those of you who have been around a while. L let's go look at that one real quick. You know the Romans 1 uh, passage, and all I had to do was kind of talk about it, and you can follow me with that. But you can go back and look at that Romans 1 also, it's another example of what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit looks like. It's those who absolutely reject truth and embrace the lie, okay? Um, Hebrews 4, 1 to 7, and then verse 11. Who's got that? Okay, thank you. So again, that's, yeah, through 7, and then 11. There you go. So according to that text, what prevents a person from having this forgiveness that this contrast is being made. Some will be forgiven and some will not. Those who will be forgiven are those who, um, you know, a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven, but then it talks about this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's who? Who does not get forgiven regarding salvation? Those who have a hard heart. When they hear the message, they, the message is preached to them, the gospel is preached to them, but they refuse to accept it. And therefore, and God says he turns them over then, or he, um, they, sh and he literally says in Hebrews 3 and 4, both of them, they shall not enter my rest. It's an emphatic, you must believe 
and you must obey. And those two subject matters are brought together, obedience and belief. And you see that over and over in Scripture. So if you go back then to chapter 11 at that woman where she says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And then Jesus said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. That's the definitive measurement by which you will be saved. There is nothing that will keep you out of, out of heaven's gates except unbelief. If you reject the Holy Spirit, you will not enter into heaven. Okay. Any other questions? <laughs> Any other thoughts? Yes. Yeah. You can hear it, but if you refuse to join it together with faith, then you will be left in your sin. And so it's the one who's left in their sin without the mediator, without the... Sp and the, by the way, the Spirit is that which seals you until the day of redemption. So if you reject the Spirit, if you revile against it... if I have a little picture of a guy here with his, his hand up and it's like, you know, no, 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 you know, right? And so if, he's, if, he's, if you are resisting, if you are railing against, if you're reviling and if you're calling unholy that which is holy and you're rejecting it that's what will keep you out of heaven that's the only thing that will keep you out of heaven is you're rejecting all right so he says that in 12 8 what yes yes okay yes please do sarah yes there it is There you go. I love that. If we deny him, he will deny us. That's exactly what he's saying in this passage. He says, if you confess me, I will confess you. If you deny me, I will deny you. And there is a, there is a, a sin which leads unto death. First John chapter 5 talks about that. And that sin that leads unto death is rejecting God's truth rejecting that Jesus is the Son of God. It's the very, if you go into First uh, John chapter 5, the very last part of that passage, it talks about a sin leading unto death. And that death is, is because of rejecting. All right, good job. So now we're down to 8 to 12, then we want a title. Did we look at that one already? We just did that one. So what did you title 8 to 12 then? What would you say is the title for that? What must you do? going to be the word confess or deny which one would you prefer <laughs> let's do confess <laughs> confess the son of man do not deny that's your contrast okay so there's there is your title for 8 to 12 now 13 to 21 is our next segment Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're back to ourselves again. You know, it is very interesting that the pragmatic uh, approach that Jesus has about humanity and life, he does understand us, doesn't he? One of the, I think one of the verses Kay took us to was, um, 
uh, Hebrews, right, where she says that he understands our infirmities because he himself, you know, lived in flesh, and so he understands what troubles us and what where our physical ailments are, and he understands our all these things. And and on, I always say, you know, God never needed to take on flesh to understand us, but he did it so that we knew that he understood. He did it for our benefit. I'm gonna have a drink of water choking up again okay so now what we want to look at is at um, uh, 13 to 21 so what is your key word in there greed all about riches and greed right and now what is so what is the contrast let's give it a title what are you going to do concerning greed yeah so guard against greed Something along those lines, and he says, but do what? What's the, the happy side of it? If you're going to, so yeah, if you're storing up, there you go, there you go. That's your contrast, be rich towards God. So don't be greedy about the, the, the temporal things of this life, about money, about possessions, about storing things up, right? S what did you learn as you looked at that passage? Anything you want to share on that? Well, you know, one of th uh, 13 to 21, one of the things that Kay told us to do is to make a list and then check all the things where you fit. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not checking one of those. I'm checking the one that says be rich towards God because <laughs> that's the only one I want to confess. <laughs> but I thought it was cute when she, <laughs> when she asks you to do things like that. I'm like, okay, come, come on, Kay. Who do you think is going to check all those things, right? Um, uh, guarding against greed, 13 to tw 21. Hold on, let me see if I've got anything in here. I don't remember. I don't remember. Somebody help me. Um, it was really good. It was so good we all forgot. The entire room forgot. It was profound. Um, yeah, right. There you go. Okay, don't worry about your life. Uh, let's let's guard against greed and let's be rich toward God. We looked at um, he showed kind of parables, right, uh, about about a man that had a land and he was rich, and this guy started finding out that he really didn't have enough room to even store it all. So what what was his solution? Build bigger, Build bigger barns. N what could have been his solution? There you go. This is what I've been telling my husband about our freezer. <laughs> Honey, we got enough pigs. Let's start giving it away. <laughs> it's time. You get a pig. That's right. Oh, wow. Her Working toward that one thing. That, and that is exactly what this is like, this isn't it? Is exactly. When I, re when I read this, that's what part of me just hits me to the core, that the focus, uh, and my mom did other things, I'm not saying she didn't, but her life, if we had asked her the one thing, she was waiting her whole life for the one thing. Mm. And so 
Yeah. Well, it could be a happy ending, but on the other hand, it does make sense. I mean, God's, God's, yeah, and that's what God says. And he says, you fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own all that you have prepared, right? So what is it, what is it warning us against? Yeah, yeah. It's keeping, so when you're looking about the bigger subject about, about the coming, right, and about the eternal life that we're going to be entering into and about um, really just eternity on the whole, we don't take this life with us. We don't even have to take this body with us. Aren't we glad? We get a better one. Amen. I get one that's fixed <laughs> and skinny. <laughs> And younger, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> all right, but I don't want to be three, being told no all the time. <laughs> okay, yes. All right, so now guard against the greed, be rich toward God. Now 22 to 34. It kind of follows, I think it follows in suit with what was just you could almost put 13 through 34 under one subject matter, but guarding against greed and be rich towards God. And what is the next one? Right. What is your key repeated word? What is your most repeated word in that segment 22 to 34? Worry. So worries should be somewhere in your title if possible. So if, you, if it's about your body and about your possessions and about what you eat and what you wear, right? And, and he says about those things, don't worry, right? So don't worry about your life or don't worry about life in general, but then he gives a pragmatic solution to if you're not going to worry about it, then what are you free to do? To seek his kingdom and yeah, um, hold on a second, let me look. What about 33? So sell your possessions and give it to charity. <laughs> Interesting because this is where the man back who was storing up his treasures in barns and buying and building bigger barns to store more, his solution to that was actually don't get a bigger barn, sell your possessions and give the money to charity. Right. Rather than worrying about your own life, do what? Be charitable to others' lives. Right? It, see the contrast in there? Very cool, huh? All right, so let's give a title up here. Don't worry about your life. You have a, f a lot of freedom to give to others when you're not so tied up in your own life and, and worried about, will I have enough and will I have for a future? And, you know, I do hear people, especially at our age, our age, my age, you know, about retirement and, the, you know, you're at the end of things and you, you don't really have any prospects for m a lot more money coming in, right? Unless you're going to come into a windfall of an inheritance somewhere. Y so 
you can start to worry about that if you're not careful. And, and, and what is this also, by the way, not saying? Uh, when it talks about selling possessions and giving it to the poor, um, can that be taken too far? Yes. Okay. There you go. That subject greed uh, that came before is really the heart of all this. It has to do with where, is that not interesting that when he closes in verse 34, what does he say? There will your heart be. So this is a heart issue. It's about where your heart is, where your emotions are tied to, what you're really wrapped up in. And if it becomes the central thing in your life is your love of things, then you're going to have a problem. And that's what he's trying to, to deviate from. Because w if, if he's coming again, and we need to be ready and faithful until his coming, we're not to be living in the temporal, but in, in the, the, the concept of there's an eternal life coming. And it's important for us to take as many with us as possible, right? Win as many souls as you can. Okay. Um, one of the things that we did not look at, we should look at real quick, is that subject about uh, hell. How many of you did uh, some good work on that? What is, it, what is the word hell there? Um, we're backing up a little bit, but I, I, you know, we didn't really cover it, so I want to do that real quickly. It's number 1067. What did you learn about hell? And the reason it's kind of important for you to put a little bit of emphasis on this is we are coming up to a chapter that's also going to address this from another perspective. And there's, I mean, there's so much to learn on this subject of hell. Do you all know the, dif the, the differences between hell and Sheol? Between the, the lake of fire and the, and the, the okay. Sheol or the, um, what else is it called? Actually, Jesus speaks of the Sheol also as uh, from the cross. He calls it what? Paradise. Today you shall, I shall, you shall be with me in paradise. He's there you go. Good job, Susan. He remembers it. Oh, not for me. Not, it's all in God's word. Not <laughs> yes. We drew the picture. Yes. Yes, we, see, you know, you, those pictures everybody hates, they are really helpful. <laughs> they do. I love it. Okay. All right, so hell is called Gehenna. Now, why is it called Gehenna? Why do you think it's called Gehenna? Do you, did you find some research on that? Okay, so it's a symbolic. Now, how is it symbolic? Where did it get its symbolism from? Okay, and what did they use that valley for? Okay, there were a couple of different things going on. One has to do with the sacrificing of babies, right, to Moloch in that valley. So that's one thing, and it's just a very, um, I think, a very pictorial imagery of the most evil that you can possibly think of, the idea of taking the most innocent and sacrificing them on the altar of Mo And the, the concept behind that whole thing is just horrifying when you think about it. And then, Lois, you were talking about what else is Geh was Gehenna used for? Did you? Uh, oh, okay, you didn't. Yes, go on. 
Yeah, it's like a dump. It's where they would take the carcasses and the dead things or the, or the refuse from other works that they had done. And so they, people, were, basically it's the city dump. They would take things out there and dump it into that, into that area. So it was filled with just the, the worst of the worst, right? And that's, so the, the pictorial imagery of it, that's where then the, the Hebrews attach that to the symbolism for, for hell. So this is what hell symbolizes, a place of complete evil and of refuse, right? Those things which are unclean and dirty. Okay, so that's what the word hell means. Now, Jesus teaches about hell. We looked at Matthew we looked at a lot of verses, hopefully. What did you learn about Jesus' teaching about hell? Because it's kind of a significant, or it's important in that some people don't think it's a literal place, which is kind of ironical. They, they believe that heaven is a real place, right? But they don't believe that hell is a real place. And there's a problem there. It, it's, it's like you gotta, if you're going to believe one, you have to believe the other, don't you? I mean, can you believe one quality that's stated in Scripture but not the other? Okay, so what do we know Jesus teaches about hell? Matthew 5 and Matthew 23. There was another one in Mark that I found that I thought was really, really good. Who would, somebody look that up while we're looking at these others. Mark 9.47. What did you learn in Matthew. I think you guys were given those verses, right? Okay, so a, uh, a place where the whole body will go. Was he speaking figuratively in that passage? Um, what is the literary form of that of that passage in Matthew? Do you know? Is it is it a, a factual statement or is it is it a parable? Okay, so it's a literal interpretation then, correct? Of that literary statement, it's not a it's not an imagery statement, correct? Okay. Okay, the whole body, this is in Matthew 5, tw uh, 29 and 30. The whole body will go there. In other words, not just the soul. Not just the soul. Now, does that kind of uh, heighten your fear, sort of, about the idea of hell for people? I mean, not for us, because we're safe, but for those who will go there, knowing and understanding that it's not just a place where the soul goes there. And, and if you think about a soul in your, uh, in your mind's eye, you think, well, there's no physical pain because it's just the soul. There'll be some kind of maybe emotional pain, but it's not going to actually be a physical thing. But what does this verse te now tell us? The whole body goes into it. And he makes a comparison in that, in that statement. He says it's better for you to gouge out an eye and enter into heaven with one eye than it is to keep both eyes and go into hell. This, again, makes it um, understandable to us that what he's saying is a physical body goes into hell when it goes into hell. It's not just the soul. It's the body as well. 
Okay. Now, what this is going to do is, again, bring up more possibilities for research on, on the concept of hell. Who goes there? When do you go there? How do you go there? You're going to look at the subjects of resurrection. And, and we know there's a resurrection of the body, but there's a resurrection of the body for the dead as well. Their resurrection, however, is, it takes them where? Into the lake of fire. That resurrection is to receive a body which they enter into hell with. Wow. Huh? Yeah, no. Kind of. All right. So that's what we learn in 29 and 30 of Matthew 5. What does he say in Matthew uh, 23? Was that the other one? Right? 23, Okay. So it's a place. Um, okay. It's a judicial sentence, though, right? It's a, it basically by law, there's a judicial court. Do we know anything about a court system that's going to be set up when people are going to be cast into hell? Great white throne of judgment. So if you don't know about that, you need to make a note of that and do some researching to, to see when does that time take place where there's a resurrection of the body of the dead who then get cast into hell with that physical body, and where is there a time when there's a judicial court that sets to make that judgment. And that's going to help clarify to you where this place called Gehenna or hell is, right? Okay, and it's going to be distinct from the place called Sheol. All right, Mark 9, 47. Let's look at that one. Somebody read that, because that one I think is really good, and I don't think it was on her list, but it came up in my research. And what I liked about it is it gives a contrast of two places, basically, of a choice of two places uh, of which people will go to. And if you believe in the one, then you'll believe in the, you have to believe in the other, because it's a choice, right, in the statement. So read 947 for me, Susan. Okay, so in that statement, then it says that you will either go into kingdom, the kingdom of God or into hell. And so you can't say that hell is not a true literal place, because if you do that, then you're also saying what? The kingdom of God is not a true literal place. And so you have to make a choice. Do you believe in, if you believe in hell, you have to believe in heaven. There, there, it's both places are true. There's a contrast that's made there about wh where you're going to end up and how you're going to end up. Jesus, by the way, is the one teaching this, right? So do you think Jesus knows? What is one of the things that Jesus talks about when he's about to ascend? He says, I'm, I'm going to go, I must go, and I go to do what? To prepare a place for you. So what is that place? Heaven, the kingdom of God, right? And, and if God is preparing that for you, and yet he turns around and makes uh, insights or truth statements about a place called hell, then what do you know? That hell is also real. After all, what are we being rescued from? If Jesus died on the cross to rescue us from hell, What's the point if there is no hell? 
Right. But I can tell you what, guys, this is a problem uh, subject for some people. They do not believe that a loving, uh, caring God would send anyone to hell, or therefore they do not believe there is a place such as hell. They think that when you die, you just die. They want, yeah, they do. They want the, their option C, exactly. Okay, so if the kingdom is a true place, so is hell. Uh, Luke 16, we're going to study in a few weeks, and it's going to add some more insights, and you'll, you'll catch up on that later. But there's a difference between Sheol and Hades. Uh, those two are, are, the, are synonymous, Sheol and Hades. And then there's this place called Hell Gehenna or the Lake of Fire. So if you want to kind of link those two places, but distinguish them as two different places so that you understand that. Okay, now we are, I think we're almost at the very end. Thir we're down through 34. We have a couple more titles. Let's see if we can walk through these very quickly, and I won't write them. We'll just talk them through. 35 to 48, what are we to do? What is your key word? Be ready. Be found on the alert. Why? That's right. You do not know the day nor the hour when he will come. He will come at a time when you do not expect. Okay, so and that is a consistent theme throughout scriptures, isn't it? All right, now 49 to 53. I love this one because it's a warning to us, right? As you're waiting for the day of his approaching, as you're waiting for his coming, and as you're being um, faithful to confess him, to fear God and not men, right? To not worry about this life, but to sell your possessions and give to others. Uh, when you're being on the alert and ready for when he comes, you're being faithful like a good slave or a good servant should. Then he says in 49 to 53 to what? What are you, what are basically he's telling you to be aware of. That's right. When it's interesting because Jesus says, well, I did not come to do what? I did not come to bring peace upon the earth. Although we talk about that a lot, that when Jesus comes, he brings peace, right? But yet here he makes it very clear, no, in this coming, I did not come to bring peace. And actually, when he comes again at the beginning, it's not for peace either. It's for war, right? But he did come to bring peace on another perspective. Between us and God. The peace that comes through salvation is the peace that he, he brought. But the physical peace on the earth, no. So don't let people deceive you into saying, well, if you're in conflict with others around you, that therefore you're out of the will of God or you're not being a good uh, Christian or you're being uh, too judgmental or too critical or too, too something, right? So that they criticize you into shutting you up. <laughs> That's kind of what they want to do, right? The world just wants you to be quiet about your righteous talk, about the things that you have to say concerning God. And, and what he's saying is here, I want you to understand, I didn't come to bring peace between brother and sister, between mother and daughter, between father and son, but rather I actually came to bring what? Division, to set a fire, to cast fire upon the earth. And he says, and I want you to be aware that until he comes again, we will face a fire of division. That's, it's just a pragmatic statement that, in, that lets you know that that is what you have coming ahead. Then the last 
segment division is 54 to 59. And what is he saying there? He's instructing them to do something. Because he's now he's turned his, his attention to whom? To the crowds. He was talking to the intimate circle primarily. And now he's turned to the crowds on the whole. And he's saying, look, you guys know how to discern the weather. You know if, if a storm is coming in, right? Just by reading the signs. But what are they not doing? Yeah. So what does that tell you about what they should have been able to do? Yeah. As a matter of fact, when we did Matthew, I remember how profound that was where it, he, he gave the evidences that he is the, the, um, the king of the Jews. And so he, he went very systematically through all these points of, see, this is what I've done, this proves it. See, this is what I've done, this proves it. And if they were paying attention, if they knew the scriptures about the coming Christ, who, the coming king, who it would be, then when they saw the things occurring, they should have recognized it, right? And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, analyze this present time. What are you seeing occurring? What did he open in, was it chapter 3 of Luke, where he presents himself at Nazareth and he stands up in the assembly and he says what? Today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. He began fulfilling at that point and then he moves forward all the way up until chapter 9, performing all these miracles to prove that he was who he said he was. And he's saying, you need to be analyzing the present time. And therefore, when he's talking about settling so that you don't have to go to court, what is the inference there? Who is he speaking about in reality? Who are you to make sure you're at peace with? God himself. Although he speaks about a general court case, the inference that he's trying to impress on them through... Um, you know, the, the kind of the imagery, I guess you would call it, of using a, 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 a court case that they would normally go into court with. He said, look, if you're going to go to court, would you not try to make peace with that guy before you had to get there? And the answer is, oh, yeah, I sure would. I don't want to go to court. Cost me more money. I could lose really big. I mean, it could be worse. So let's see if we can settle it here. This is what he's encouraging them. He's saying, look, analyze the times. I am coming. And he says, before I get here, because when I get here, it's a day of reckoning. That's when the court case is final, and there is no more turning back. And he says, I want you to analyze the time. Be aware of what's going on around you. Perceive the messages of truth about who I am, and settle and make peace with God. Right? Good stuff. Well, I think I got through most of what I had on my chart.